Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is 18-time Grammy-winning engineer Benny Facconi. First of all, you'd be surprised at the number of people that are earning $50,000 or more on Spotify. According to Spotify, there are 13,400 artists that generated more than $50,000 last year. They expect that number to jump to 25,000 in 2025. Now, stop jumping up and down because this sounds great, but when we really dive into the numbers, we find something out that maybe we don't want to hear. There are 7 million artists on Spotify. Now, actually, Daniel Eck himself says there's 8 million creators, but 1 million of that accounts for podcasters. So, there are 7 million musical artists on Spotify. That means that only 0.2% are earning $50,000 or more per year. It gets worse. Don't forget that 50% or more goes to the record label and publisher. And if you play in a band, that gets divided by the number of people in the band. So $50,000 is a nice sum of money to get, and you can live okay if you get it all. But it takes an awful lot to get there. Now, it's always been difficult to make it in the music business. doesn't matter when you get into it. It's always been difficult. Now, that being said, it used to be easier to earn a living in the past than it is now. Now there are fewer gigs because of DJs, because of the demand for smaller combos. And just because it's kind of the same amount of money that people are getting paid 10 and 20 years ago. So it's a lot more difficult because of that. But on the other hand, in some ways, it's easier not to make a living, but it's easier to actually make it big. Now, it used to be that what would happen is you'd play a lot of gigs and you're really good. And when there was a line around the block waiting for you, all of a sudden, A&R people would show up. They don't care so much about your music but they care about your audience. Have an audience, you have a record deal. Now, that's pretty much gone away. Yes, there's still some of it, but the fact of the matter is, A&R is data-driven. They look at numbers. If you're going viral on any platform, doesn't matter what it is, then they're interested. That means that you can pretty much come out of nowhere without that much of experience if you happen to have a good song that a lot of people like all at once. So when it comes down to it, yes, it's as hard as ever to make it in the music business. And let me just throw some shining light on that $50,000 Spotify number. Fact of the matter is, we're only talking about one platform. Most artists, in fact, have a number of platforms that are paying them. I think there's 27 different platforms around the world. And you may not be getting the same amount of money as you're getting from Spotify, but you are getting something from all these other streaming services. So there's a lot more money coming in that meets the eye. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. let's talk about mixing for mastering. I always get the same question over and over whenever I have a Q&A or an online workshop. This question always comes up and it comes up multiple times. 
And so what level should I send to Spotify? Should I send to mastering? Should I send anywhere? And there's a whole lot of information out there. Unfortunately, a lot of it is outdated. So many people are relying on information that might have worked 10 or 20 years ago and doesn't work now. So for instance, one common piece of advice is you should take the limiter off before you send your mix off to mastering. Another is, along the same lines, you should send whatever you have to mastering with 10 dB of headroom. Well, this worked once upon a time. The reason why is mastering engineers had much better tools than mixers had. Mixers really didn't put too much on the mix bus, and the levels weren't that loud, so they needed some help in order to get it louder. And the mastering engineer was the place to get it. They were really good at it. So they would ask, don't put a limiter on. My limiters are better. Give me some headroom. Give me something to work with. Now, to some degree, that still works. Mastering engineers love it when you give them headroom. Mastering engineers love it when something isn't too squashed. That being said, the problem is if you have a mix that you love, don't touch it. Just send it off to mastering. If you have a mix that a client has signed off on, don't touch it. Just send it off to mastering. The reason why is that, well, you can't always rely on the mix getting better. Yes, sometimes mastering engineers can work magic. Other times, not so much so. So the rule of thumb is you like it, don't touch it. Now, what I always tell people is, okay, if you are sending it off to mastering, then contact the mastering engineer and ask what he or she wants from you. And they'll give you guidelines, and you should try to mix within those guidelines. But if whatever you do doesn't meet what everybody likes to hear, then you should just go ahead, do what you have to do. And mastery engineers are good enough these days, they know how to deal with almost anything that comes in. So remember, mastery engineers are there to help. The better the mastery engineer, the more they'll help you. But that being said, most of the time, they're not miracle workers, so don't expect one. My guest this week is 18-time Grammy-winning engineer Benny Ficconi, who started working at the famous A&M Studios back in 1980, where he worked on records by Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Nicks, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Supertramp, Michael Jackson, and many more. After Benny went freelance, he quickly became the go-to engineer for Latin stars like Mana, Jose Jose, Luis Miguel, Ricky Martin, Santana, and many more. Benny is used to working in the best studios in the world, but has been working in his own room in different locations since 2006. He recently decided to build a first-class room in his garage. Yes, he's still an analog guy and mixes on a console. During the interview, we spoke about how to build a great-sounding room cheaply, template mixing for analog, the sound of vintage reverbs, and you'll hear some really good stories. I spoke with Benny via Zoom from a studio just outside of Los Angeles. I just looked, and it's exactly three years since the last time you were on, and what that means is you were in your old studio, which was sort of a commercial studio, wasn't it? It was a private, but it was formerly a commercial studio. Yeah, it was formerly um, uh, 41A and 41B, they were called, and 41B, which is next door, had this amazing room um, studio that Bruce Swedeen, 
uh, Abel Boreal, when I worked with him and he came over, he said, boy, this area looks familiar. And then he told me the history that they would do a lot of Christian records there. And the studio I was at, one of the Memphis Mafia guys, or maybe, no, no, somebody told me it was like a the keyboard player for Elvis. He was the original guy that built the studio and did all this woodwork um, where the bay window control room windows are. Hmm. So it goes back a ways, that, that place, which is kind of interesting. But then you gave up the lease and you built a mix room in your house. But here's the thing. You actually built it like it should be. I mean, it's not a typical home studio at all where it's just, a, you know, some acoustic treatment and, you know, some gear thrown in. Yeah. This is the real deal. I still, you know, I still come from old school in a way where I still have to deal with a console, which is really, I don't know if I can swear, but it's a pain in the ass, but it's just worth it for me. You know, just the feel of faders I like. And when I built this room, I intended just to build it as, oh, screw it. Everybody has it like anybody else, you know, where you just put it in a room. But I needed the acoustics and I, I needed to hear properly. And it's funny what I've learned, how cheaply you can do it. It doesn't have to be no tens of thousands of dollars of acoustics or, or uh, you know, like everything, whatever is done. The only thing and which really blew my mind that makes this room sound better than any of the other rooms, including some of the major rooms, is electrical. What I did here, I, I got clean power from my circuit box coming directly into the studio, which is not too far away since it's my garage. But because of that clean power, everything sounds better. Hmm. You know, when I had the other studios, I had clean power. It was coming directly from the street to the generators, the whole thing. But it's something about maybe the shortness of it or whatever it is. I crank up my volume and not only is it clean, but things uh, almost sound better in a way because of that clean power. And so I realized how important electrical is more than anything else. Now, you mentioned that it didn't cost you a lot. Do you want to share how much it cost? Well, what costed the most was building the room within the room, in the garage, meaning, because I wanted a, um, a place where at 3 o'clock in the morning, I wanted to mix. I wanted it soundproofed. I didn't want to disturb anybody in the house. Uh, unfortunately, by 7 o'clock, I'm done. So <laughs> <laughs> it didn't matter. But um, yeah, so that the building that, and I, I consulted with Alan Sides with um, uh, a, a few people, uh, Ben O'May, who's like my guardian angel, um, the head tech at Bernie Grum, and he, we talked a lot about it. But finding out that, for example, building the shell is basically, if I wanted it done right, like a lot of studios, first of all, having you know, space between the outer wall and the inner wall. Uh, so you don't have a lot of that, that there's a, like a, a trap in between, which I did. And then instead of just having um, plywood or not plywood, but um, drywall, drywall that uh, for $15 a sheet, 
there's better drywall. I forget what it's called now with all this stuff. That was $65 a sheet. So I used that instead, which brought up the price. And then I put um, um, some soundproofing material like the uh, rubber. Uh, you know, I, I don't know all the, the right words for them or the right names, unfortunately. I can't think of it either, yeah. Yeah, but it's like some kind of special rubber. And I was going to get into, you know, calling Arlex or calling like acoustical places and, and buying stuff. And they were charging so much that this was so much cheaper. And basically, the room costed about, well, material-wise, probably about $5,000. Is that all? Wow. For, mater for the material. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and uh, and obviously the labor, you know, they, they charged a lot too. But all this stuff you see behind me, like these panels, and I got these ideas from um, Bernie Grumman. Uh, so it's not just like straight flat panels. These are kind of rounded. And at Bernie Grumman's uh, Pat's room, where she's like a, a incredible a mastering engineer, she does a lot of movie scores and stuff. What they did, these panels, they almost have it like keys, where when you hit the panel, it kind of you can hear a pitch almost. Now that's getting overkill. So what they had these panels starting starting at the at the end where it would be one size and they get get smaller and smaller towards the speakers now what so what i did i, I wasn't going to go that far but i'm i had because i'm not a um go with my hands in, in that sense that i had a carpenter build me just a frame which is basically not even two by fours just you know like a, um, a rectangle and rounded rather than square and I bought uh, pillow foam instead of uh, fiberglass, which is much better because of the it, it was, fiberglass made everything really dark. Yeah. And that st the stuff you you stuff pillow in um, keeps the room bright, but helps with the reflections. I just stuffed it myself. I found out what kind of material Bernie Grumman bought. I I I bought it, and it's so easy with a staple gun. You know, it took me a couple of weeks, but got it done. I didn't realize you did all that by yourself. I had time. I had nothing else to do while uh, the, the room was being built and stuff. So, yeah. And, you know, it learned a lot that it's not that complicated. And what I did do when I did the ceiling, basically um, the room within the room, the ceiling is just plywood. It's not even drywall. It's literally just plywood. So I thought, hmm, let me get, you know, get crazy here. So because of plywood, maybe I'll build baffles and, and I'll put uh, acoustical treatments. I spent like three days uh, putting in these panels that I have from my old studio that, that were filled with fiberglass. I came in and it was dark. It was like almost having um, um, headphones on. So Benno came in and he said, take all that crap down. And you know what he said to do? Just put pecking blanket up there. And I stapled pecking blankets. Wow. That's it. And and nothing else. It's just plywood. So basically he said that the important thing you need to do is just cut the reflections, which packing blankets are one of the best and cheapest things to do. And the only thing I did, because it kind of looks ugly, you probably can't see. No. 
uh, with the light, I just went to Joanne's Fabrics, which was my first initial contact with Joanne's Fabrics. Oh, my God, you want to go in there and talk about women who like fighting for material and, and stuff. Yeah, I've, I've been there. Yeah, I know. So I bought uh, black material that kind of breeds, and I went up there and stapled with, um, I painted the staplers black. And so basically what you see is a, a black ceiling, very cheap. Well, didn't you have to blow out the side of your garage in order to get the console in? Well, that's another story, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because do I bring the console in before they, they build the room? Because there was no way of getting it in here. The console is exactly 11 feet, 1 inches, which is even bigger than a Neve or, um, you know, like a normal Neve because this is an extended uh, Trident ADC. It's a 48 with 24 instead of 32 in with 24 uh, and a producer's desk, which has a patch bay. So it was very big, and I had to blow out my garage entrance, so I made a double door. And when the room was done, I had to kind of angle it in a way and finagle it in here. But th that's what happens when you don't want the simplicity of just having a computer. Now, see, I was under the impression that makes a lot more sense than what I thought you did. I thought you blew out the sidewall and just took it in sideways like that. But... That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, basically, the outside, I have like um, a little walkway. So the movers came, the piano movers, basically, and they just kind of backed up and then kind of sideways um, kind of finagled it in. So I have my door to the entrance to the garage and then come in and then there's a door to the studio. So they kind of just went sideways. I don't know if you can tell, but, mm, yeah. but it, it was... It was a trip. It was it's nerve wracking because um, I had the same problem in my older studio where I was at that uh, we thought we can bring it in. There's plenty of room. Problem is it needed to turn to get in the door. Yeah. And the movers had to lift it up, and it was off by one inch. Oh. It couldn't it couldn't go up and turn, so we had to blow out a whole room to turn it and go in. So yeah, that, those are the, the fun parts about having um, an analog an analog console, you know, where you, <laughs> you deal with all that stuff. Yeah, you know, I never thought to ask you about that in your old studio, how you did that, because there's some turns there to get into the control room, and it's like, yeah. wow, I, how did that happen? Well, there was there's a back door that you kind of can walk in, and then my door was right here, and then there's a walkway. So they brought it in and to kind of, they brought it in, lifted it up, and they were going to turn it, bring it down and go in. But when they lifted it up, it didn't, it didn't, that one inch would not lift it, lift it up. So I had to call a carpenter and blow it out. But you know what? For me, it's worth it uh, because not only, uh, obviously, it's, you know, it's a constant. To me, it sounds better because I've got, um, the uh, Steve Ferlot mods in this console, which uh, you probably, it's like that right there. Yeah. And what that is, is it makes the console not only the bottom end is ridiculous, 
incredible, like just flat bottom end, a lot brighter, but also the width of the stereo is amazing. You know, if you mix in the box, even though it doesn't really matter because people listen on their little phones or boom box or cars, but if you listen to stereo and Pro Tools, you're literally listening to 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Even though it's stereo, it, it's almost this width. Mm -hmm. But when with Steve Furlot's mod, it makes the console this way. So it kind of like just opens it up. Now, it just alone, an analog console alone will do that. If you have the Neves and SSL, they sound amazing. But the Trident, you know, it's not as good as the other console, but it just literally, you can hear a guitar. You know, if you put it to the left, you'll hear it here. You won't hear it there, like where your ear is. You'll hear it. It, it really spans it out. It's hard, unless you really sit down and listen to it. It just blows blow me away just how, what it sounded like, the difference. You have a lot of outboard gear, hardware. How much do you use it? You still use it all? All of it. Actually, if you see my patch bay, sorry, I've got things. Yeah. If you yeah. see that patch bay, which is basically a snake, I don't touch it. So everything's basically, I've got my my um, signal paths, you know, for vocals, and I don't, I don't move it much. I, I mainly move the levels coming from Pro Tools to go into my gear. You're doing kind of what Chris Lord Algae does. Yeah, yeah, I guess I am. And, and, and the reason why I did it, I don't know what his reason was, probably the same, is for recalls. Because mm, right. if I ever have to do a recall, I don't have a total recall console. So I just have fader automation. So basically... I can, I, if I just notate the penny and the EQ, you know, different here or there, I can recall anything because the analog gear never gets touched. You never change the settings in your analog gear? Very, very little, if, if that, because, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say do the same thing with the kick or the snare, but the sounds are different, but the levels are the same and the compression is pretty much the same. And EQ is the same thing. You know, I'll always, uh, for me, I'll always hit that 400 hertz, some of the trash, and get rid of that and uh, and and get that sound that I'm looking for. I tried the Bruce Wadeen one where, you know, he, the kick, he'll hit it hard at 3K and get that Michael Jackson punch. So it's more of a kind of a kick. I just like it more round. So what I've learned from the engineers that kind of I, I worked with they take out the 400 and just make it bigger. Yeah, yeah. And, and the punch comes from the 3K still, but just there's a, there's like a, taking out some of the trash. Do you know who Billy Decker is? No, I don't. I don't think so. He's like the Chris Lord Algae of Nashville. Oh. And he's had a lot of hits, but he does what he calls template mixing, which, which is very interesting, but it's the same idea where he has the same plugins and the same settings on every channel yeah and what he'll do though is he'll go in and he'll clip gain things so it's at the right gain in order to activate everything the right way that the actually that it's the same concept obviously pro tools logic it all came from analog thought so yeah i can see where that is the only thing that i don't like about that is 
the fact that also, and if you talk to anybody that deals with analog, it's not only the signal path, but also the sound that they're looking for. So obviously, you know, I'll go through a, a 160 dBx limiter, not only to limit, but also for that sound. I still haven't heard that much of a difference when if I used a plug-in version of it. So you get the compression, but I don't get that sound. And the more I start adding plugins, the more, you know, really doesn't give you that um, human element of, of what you're looking for sound-wise, yeah. if that makes sense. What are you using for reverb? Well, that, that I'm embarrassed to say, but to me, it still sounds better than any reverb that I heard on here, and that's an SPX-90. Wow. And a Rev-7. Huh. I wanted to use an AMS reverb. I actually even already had the settings on the console marked, but I never got around to buying it. But it's funny because every test that I've done, those sounded better than plugins. Now, I don't know, you know, if there's other reverbs other than the basic ones, not only that you buy from Wave or even Universal Audio, but they still to me, don't sound as good. And I did a test. I don't know if I told you this before, but I used to love, and actually everybody used to use the EMT 250 reverb. Right. I mean, that was, you know, from Al Schmidt to Bruce Wedeen. I've learned that. It wasn't coming from me. It was, you know, the great engineers. And Bruce would use it on strings. He would use it on vocals. Even my old mentor, Don Hahn, who would do the same, the, the EMT-250 was the reverb to use if you don't have a plate from a good studio. So I, and whenever I go to Conway, all my old records up until I started, you know, going to home studios were always EMT-250s, all my old records. And any Michael Jackson record you hear from Swedeen or Quincy Jones, it's an EMT-250 with just reverb setting. Right now, it's like a $30,000 piece of gear, and all you use it for is reverb. Yeah, yeah. So one day, um, this guy called me, and he said he wanted me to mix a song because he heard some records I've done in the 90s, and he liked the string sound. So, uh, well, let me back up a second. Um, I, I teach at school a little bit, and one day, uh, they got a hold of all the, um, the new plugins, and one of them was an EMT-250 plugin which I was really excited to, to listen to. So I'm, I did a test. I had the plug-in and I used it and A-beat it with an SPX-90 on the drums. SPX-90 blew it away. Wow. Obviously, and the SPX-90 was just, you know, it's not that great of a reverb to yeah. me. If you, from the old days when we had plates, AMS reverbs, um, EMT-250s, those were the shit. But then one day when this guy called and said he wanted me to mix, I said, you know, the great string sound was from great reverbs, and I used the MT-250. I said, well, let's get one. Okay, so rented one. You know, it's, it's like 125 150 bucks a day. We got it in, and I said, you know, I got to do a test. So I tested it from the SPX-90 to the real uh, 250, and the 250 blew the SPX-90 away. Yeah. So that's kind of my... That was my test. I remember visiting Don Hahn at 
on the Paramount stage, Paramount Pictures, and he was doing a Star Trek date, as I recall. Yeah, he would do a lot of those. He had two EMT 250s, one for the strings and one for the horns. Yeah, for different reverb time settings. Yeah. Everybody. I mean, any studio you go to, and I hate to use to say it, but if you remember design effects, Gary Ladinsky, who retired now, that's how he made his living. He would rent out his EMT 250s and his AMS reverbs. That's how he would go from studio to studio with his cartridge and rent it out and make money. Yeah, there you go. Not many of them around, so sure, you could do that. Yeah, yeah we, we got used to plugins, you know, and I would never listen to serious uh, satellite radio. Cause to me, they're literally, you know, MP3 files or whatever. And when I do, you literally, all it is is loud vocals and like drums. And the music is kind of like just back there somewhere, you know, unless it's a great, great mix or the Beatles. But still, it's it's a little different. But I got used to it too. You know, you get used to all that stuff. And now we're used to that and everybody, you know, with the loud vocals, because you can make them perfect, that's... That's what everybody wants. Sirius used to bug me because it sounded like it was flanged. There's a, like a light flange on it. And it was like, I hate this. Yeah. You get used to it. We got used to, um, I fought CDs tooth and nail. I fought um, a digital, you know, and what do I know? Uh, but it, it gets better and better as time goes on. It's just, we're still not, at the point of, I think, on radio uh, or uh, any of those places to listen to really good files or that if people really care. Yeah, that's the big thing. There are some good reverb plugins. The The one that comes to mind is the Bricasti knockoff. It's the same engine that they have in the Bricasti. It does sound pretty good. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, you know, try and, and find something and honestly to get away from analog if we could. But it's not to say that the plugins don't sound good. They just don't give me the sound that I'm looking for when I put it through the real stuff. That's, that's what I miss. Are you doing anything in the box? Oh, yeah. I don't have that much stuff. I've got, you know, five 160Xs, a couple of 160s, seven or I don't have that much. But, oh, yeah, I use a lot of, a lot of 1176 compressors. Um, any effects I'll use in the box. I love the sound toys effects. It's funny because I use the crystallizer. I don't know why, but just to open a piano or a synth, like I said, anything, those, all the digital stuff, it really isn't a wide sound. When you hear it, we're used to it. So we know that, you know, it's like nine o'clock and three o'clock. But to open it up and give it depth, I'll put a crystallizer on it and not even mess with, um, with, the, with the settings. Just put it there and just find the right spot where it doesn't sound crazy, and it kind of opens it up. I love depth. Yeah. Well, you learned from Bruce. Bruce Fadine was kind of the master of that. Yeah, yeah. I wish I would have um, assisted Al Schmidt a lot more, who was another amazing guy but what i've learned from bruce man how he would like 
shape things and and um you know his sub mixes were basically all going towards his mix he would put everything in stereo because that's that's what gave them the depth uh, if if he if he had like a keyboard sometimes he would just remic reamp it or not re remic and send it out to the studio and speakers and just to give it depth you know he would do that kind of stuff and even if a guitar was mono, he'd make it stereo. So there'd always be like an openness to it. Uh, and the one thing that I wish I would have learned from Al, Al is a master not only in everything, but his vocal sounds are just freaking unbelievable. But how much of that is recording with him? Yeah. Well, it is. That's It, it definitely it is. But in the mix, how you handle it but maybe he doesn't do much i know you know when you work with the greats they you don't want to mess with it i guess but yeah it's it's different but his vocals always sound amazing i can remember hanging with him for a mix and uh looking at the console when he went out out of the room thinking he's not really doing much yeah yeah but the thing about it is he would come in and hardly touch something and it would get a lot better. He'd just know, you know, what to do and how to do it. And it wouldn't be much, but it would make a huge difference. Yeah. Well, those guys are great. I remember the beginning when I started at A&M and started assisting on some of the old school great engineers, Huey Louie, uh, Huey, um, uh, not Huey Louie, uh, Huey. Ha he was, uh, Henry, Henry Louie. Henry Louie, yes. He produced Joni Mitchell and all that stuff. He literally, he he would start by just putting all the faders at zero. Hmm, yeah. And just, you know, kind of do whatever. But he loved the 1176 on the vocal and crushing it. I mean, like hitting it, having it hit. But you get these singers that are so amazing that, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever whatever it is, that they just sound great. I remember you telling me a story, I'm not going to mention the artist, it was a major artist that came to your old studio, and you rented a C12, and you rented, you know, an LA-2A and, and everything, and you thought you had a great sound until the producer came in, and then it sounded pretty bad, and you were shocked, and nobody said a word, and then when you looked after everybody left, it was all the plugins they were using while recording. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly that because these guys had their templates that no matter what, they will go through that template. No matter, uh, And that's how they start. And actually, uh, a couple of times, um, a different producer that came in, they brought their engineers, and he said, oh, you know, just open up your template, no problem. <laughs> I, I don't have a template. <laughs> but I, I did, I, I was able to... Um, save some of the templates i've got them on my computer here but i never use it because it's just like you know i'm one thing i do gotta admit though those vocal producers they make gold out of uh anteal let's let's be yeah. nice about it and the things that they can do to make the vocal sound amazing in the sense of of pitch and um and performance the only thing they can't do is the feel but but the things that it's almost like you have to, when you hear something, you have to know, can this be fixed or not be fixed? 
when I would listen to it, I was go, what the hell? How are they going to sing that? Because I grew up uh, like, you know, a lot of people in the old days where you keep punching in until the performance and the pitches, right? Because we didn't have, you know, no uh, Pro Tools and stuff. So, yeah, it's it's a little different thought. Those are the days when you had to get it right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the singers, like, uh, you know, a um, couple of Bra- uh, Barbara Streisand records that I did, uh, they they said, you know, y- your S's are a little too much. Um, should I put a de-esser on it? She goes, no, 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 I'll take care of it. And they can actually fix their 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 voice, you know, lower the S's and do stuff. Uh, well, it's the same thing as with the drummer, a good drummer, where you say, oh, wait, your cymbals are too loud. Okay, take care of it. And there's less cymbals the next take. Right. Your toms are not loud enough, and then it's fine after that. Yeah. Well, my favorite story is, I won't mention names or anything, a drummer, I probably told you this a hundred times, that still my favorite, where when Pro Tools was, was, you know, starting out and everybody was, uh, everybody was an engineer kind of a thing, because you can be, and uh, they were doing a tracking session and the engineer went up to the drummer and said, could you play softer in your kick? You're peaking on my meters. (laughs) (laughs) That's the difference, isn't it? Yeah. These days. But I think it's getting better like everything else. We're learning. We get used to it. And maybe not in my time, but it is getting better and better. Or we're we're getting used to it and getting better. I don't know. You've done mostly mixing for quite a while now. And now you're doing some recording again. Yeah, I am. I'm. I still enjoy doing some recording. I, I I didn't know how much I loved tracking with four or five people in the room. Um, I I've done maybe three or four of that this year, and a few last year. Obviously, the pandemic, but it's so much fun, especially if you've got. You know, I did a session with uh, Greg Bissonette, Abel Boreal, Dean Par. Um, um, uh, George Deering, uh, Ramon Stagnaro, you know, and they're in there, man. You know, you just enjoy how what they play. It's so much fun. It's not like, oh, man, I've got four weeks of fixing to do. And, and you can get a sound, too. Yeah, right. Last question. So let's get back to your studio for a second. So if someone was going to pursue doing the same thing, what would you suggest to them? What would be your advice? The first thing is to make sure you get something that you hear properly that not only sounds great in your room, but that sounds great when you take it out. That's the hardest thing that people, now if they're mixing on headphones or mixing with just speakers and no acoustics, they walk out and there's like tons of bottom end or or no bottom end. You know, um, everybody has their own opinions and way they want to hear things and i hear some great creative stuff being done by done by even kids you know it's different than what i would do but some of the stuff it sounds great in the room it's just they don't have the right listening tools more than anything else and that's the most important thing if you want to hear more from benny he's also appeared on podcasts number five and 171 of my inner circle podcast you can find out more about him at bennyfacconi.com. That's Benny Facconi, F-A-C-C-O-N-E, all one word, dot com. 
Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh,